Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. I'm going to go around the room and say our names. I'm George. Dennis. My name is Stephen. Tony. Peter. Matthew. My name is Cass. My name is Jeff. Marty. Bob. Jack. Don. My name is Gary. Mark. My name is Michael. David. Greg. My name is Andre. Vin. My name is Christian. And Jason One. Jason <laughs> Only. <laughs> I'm Tom. Jay. My name is Joe. I'm Greg. I'm Mike. I'm Samuel. Still Tom. Justin. And Brad. Everybody? And Clark is coming in. Our speaker's name is Tom Moon. Um, Tom Moon is a native San Franciscan and has been a Buddhist practitioner for 24 years. He's a psychotherapist in private practice and works with a primarily gay male clientele. His chief professional commitment is to explore the interface between Buddhist practice and psychotherapy. Tom writes a bi-weekly column, The Examined Life, which appears locally in the San Francisco Bay Times. An archive of, of this columns, as well as his spiritual manifesto, Spirit Matters, can be found on his website, www.tommoon.net. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. What I wanted to talk about today um, is the practice of self-compassion. Um, I've been very impressed, as have a lot of people, with um, Kristen Neff's work, her uh, book on self-compassion. I saw it, a copy here last time I was here. I know people are reading it. Um, I did a, a training with her in June at Spirit Rock, and she's quite a rock star. I mean, uh, I wanted to get her to sign my book, but there were a hundred <laughs> people ahead of me, so I didn't. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, well, first of all, what she's doing is very good work. She's divided uh, uh, self-compassion into three components. And the idea is that all three of these components can be learned and practiced so that self-compassion is like a muscle and you can strengthen it um, deliberately, which I think is good news for Americans. Because you know, um, we're really, really, I think, we're really hard on ourselves, you know, most of us have uh, pretty active uh, inner critics. Uh, perfectionism is a big problem for many of us. So I think this is a good antidote. Uh, it's worth, it, the book is worth reading and the practices that we're doing. Um, the th just to list the three, her three components are uh, kindness versus self-criticism, common humanity versus isolation, and mindfulness versus over-identification. 
I think she treats treats them in the teaches them in the wrong order personally. So I'll go through it and go backwards. Uh, mindfulness versus over identification would be the first component. Um, and the reason I think it's the foundation, of course, is that uh, you can't respond compassionately to your suffering unless you're first aware that it's there. You know, the Buddha just defined uh, uh, compassion as the quivering of the heart in response to the awareness of suffering. Well, you can't quiver if you don't aren't aware of the suffering, right? What, as therapists sometimes say, you know, you can't heal what you can't feel. But I think that um, if we're going to use mindfulness uh, to respond to compassion, we need to understand mindfulness, I think, correctly, in a different way from what, where, where it's often understood. Because um, the term mindfulness uh, includes the word mind, which tends to suggest or connote uh, a kind of dispassionate distancing, coldness, uh, purely mental activity. Um, something detached and emotionless too, I think, which it isn't supposed to be. Um, a while ago, a guy, a mansplained Buddhism to me by saying, uh, Buddhism is all about detachment. That's the fundamental thing in Buddhism. You know, and meditation is reaching this state of kind of lordly indifference and aloofness from all experience, you know, and that's the end of suffering. And I, my response was, ew, you know. <laughs> why would I want to live that way even if I could? So I think the term uh, can take us in the wrong direction, can uh, uh, suggest a misunderstanding, uh, can create a misunderstanding of what the process is. At least that's what happened to me for a few years. Um, because the practice of mindfulness is supposed to be a practice of engaging the present with the whole of your being. Uh, I'm told that Jack Kornfield doesn't even use the term anymore. <clears throat> he speaks of presence instead. And um, uh, some other people have been talking about heartfulness as a better term for what we're doing. Um, Ajahn Brahm calls it kindfulness. He's written a little book on the subject, kindfulness. It says, don't just be mindful, be kindful. Uh, it's an interesting book, and it's, uh, the whole idea in, in, in his approach is that, uh, that we establish a sense of kindness and open, open-heartedness toward our experience as we sit down, and that's the basis of mindfulness. And then everything else, counting breaths, concentration, and stuff is on that foundation. Um, so, um, the path to enlightenment is, is often compared to a bird. You've heard this phrase, this uh, metaphor. One wing is um, wisdom, and the other wing is compassion. So in, in that, and that's a useful way of looking at things. In that view, you know, uh, the wisdom wing is mindfulness and equanimity, and the compassion wing is you know, metta and mudita, forgiveness practices. So, and then you get to enlightenment that way. But um, what's interesting about that metaphor is that it, it, uh, it, it says that, you know, the bird can only fly 
by using two wings, right? It all happens at once. So we can think about mindfulness over here and compassion over here, but in fact, uh, it all has to arise together if you're going to get anywhere, I think. Um, so I did an experiment a few years ago uh, because I was, at that time, I was thinking that we should call it heartfulness, you know. I mean, I know mindfulness is the word we have, but I thought, let's, let's think of it as heartfulness. So I did an experiment both here one Sunday, uh, three years ago, maybe four, uh, and also at uh, Mission Dharma. And what the experiment was was to do two one-minute meditations. And uh, the instructions were pretty close in each one, but they were different. So in the first meditation, the instructions were, for the next minute, close your eyes, sit quietly, anchor your attention on the breath, and be mindful of whatever arises. The, um, the, uh, the second meditation, it was, for the next minute, close your eyes, sit quietly, anchor your attention on the breath, and open your heart to receive whatever arises. And what surprised me, I mean, here, and, you know, there are experienced meditators here and, and, and at, uh, at uh, Mission Dharma, but people experience <coughs> their meditations differently. At least everyone who spoke said the second one was deeper, more focused, more just plain enjoyable than the first. So this phrase is really important. Um, so my, I think if we're going to use mindfulness in the service of emotions like compassion, it's really important to uh, establish mindfulness as a heartful practice. So ways to do it are, um, you know, you can begin a meditation <coughs> with metta phrases, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be... And then, you know, establish yourself in, in the wish for your own happiness and your own well-being, and maybe uh, may I respond to whatever arises with kindness and compassion, whatever you want to say, and then let go and just do the practice and see what the difference is. Um, another one, yeah, another uh, practice is to um, put the hand on the heart. It, it, you might even try this if you want. It's, and, and then close your eyes and just feel the warmth of your hand going into your heart. Uh, for many people, just that gesture for a minute is a very soothing, heart-opening gesture. Very interesting. You know, this is the heart chakra, traditionally the seat of feelings. And whether you believe that or not, this seems to be where a lot of feelings are experienced. Where experientially, this is the... So, to bring your awareness to your heart seems to be helpful in opening it. Ajahn, Ajahn Brahm um, <coughs> uh, suggests visualizations as a way of doing this. Um, he says... Uh, so imagine um, a golden radiance emanating from a beautiful white lotus flower in the middle of your heart. Allow that radiance to expand in all directions, embracing, embracing more and more living beings until it becomes boundless. And then uh, he says, end the meditation. And then you, then you go into mindfulness, and then you end the meditation uh, by um, visualizing the golden radiance of kindfulness being drawn back into the lotus, and but you leave the warmth outside. I think for a lot of people that's a little too gushy, but 
Uh, I, 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 some people, if you like visualization, that can be um, a powerful method for establishing the intention for in, in every mindfulness practice period that I'm going to be kind to myself, that this, that this mindfulness practice is about self-care and self-love, uh, openness to whatever is, uh, is experienced, including the suffering. And then, when suffering arises, the quivering of the heart presumably will happen naturally. And then mindfulness becomes an exercise in compassion and awareness. The, the, um, the um, takeaway line that I got from uh, Kristen Neff's workshop, uh, her whole was summed, her whole uh, talk on mindfulness was summed up in one sentence. Okay, rest your awareness not in your pain, but in the love that enfolds it. Rest your awareness not in your pain, but in the love that enfolds it. So you're mindful, but you're not just swamped with pain, but you're you are aware of the loving kindness and the compassion that enfolds all. That's really the whole, the whole, what she has to teach about mindfulness. Um, the second two were common humanity and self-kindness. So common humanity is um, how we differentiate uh, compassion from self-pity. Uh, a friend of mine uh, had a grandmother who had lived her entire life uh, healthy. She never got sick a day in her life. Then at 91, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And her response was, why me? <laughs> right? I mean, it's really amazing that the human mind can do that. I mean, you can live 91 years and not notice that sickness, old age, and death are happen a lot, you know. Uh, and, but, so, she has, because um, she couldn't, uh, she saw herself as victimized by her suffering and singled out, it was impossible for her to be self-compassionate because right off the bat, she's separate from other people. Um, so common humanity, uh, according to Neff, is the practice of understanding your suffering as part of the story of, of as part of human suffering, as part of everybody's suffering. So if a friend uh, dies and you're grieving, part of your meditation can be not just acceptance of your suffering, but also, for instance, sending kindness to everyone in the world who's lost a friend recently. You know, the and and what that is is connecting. So it, it can be misunderstood. This practice as you know, people are starving in Africa, so shut up. I mean, it, it, that's not exactly the point. The point is um, to n not to minimize your own suffering, but to see it as part of what you join with other people, you share with other people. And then the, the final one is self, words of self-kindness. So uh, most of us, I think, most Americans are pretty self-critical. You know, the inner critic is very active. Uh, perfectionism, as I said, is another big issue. I mean, a lot of people, for a lot of people, there are two states, perfection 
or failure. You know, if you're not perfect, you're failing. And we really um, uh, are hard on ourselves. It's really amazing as a therapist to see here what people do to, do to themselves. They report their suffering, which is painful enough, and then why they're wrong for having it, and what's you know, and why they hate themselves, or why they made this, these mistakes, and what's wrong with me, and uh, and so on. So. Uh, Words of self-kindness are, are is just an intention when you suffer to offer yourself, you know, meta phrases, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be well, may I be safe, um, may I respond to my suffering with kindness. Uh, and and do that as a regular practice. Okay. Then when uh, so to put it all together, uh, you can do all all three of these things. Uh, in like 30 seconds. What you can do when you're suffering, you can be first the mindfulness, hand on the heart, and just the where I am suffering right now. This is suffering. And then my suffering is part of the suffering of all humanity. That phrase. And then may I respond to my measure of suffering with wisdom and kindness, or whatever you want to say. So that, that, that little, those three phrases encapsulate all three of her, of her uh, components. And hopefully that is a little course correction in your day when you're suffering that, you know, can have major impact. Um, that's really all I, that's my whole act, basically. Um, I'd like to have a discussion, if we can, about this subject of self-compassion, sir. Um, can, can you define when you say, when I'm suffering, I'm going to do this? What do you mean exactly? Because there's all this spectrum. Does it just mean I'm feeling something I don't want to feel in this moment? Or I'm emotionally uh, dysregulated? It's like, I think suffering gets, the word gets used in a lot of different ways. Sure. Um, it's big. I'm stressed out. Is that suffering? I think so. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, like, kind of well, whenever I'm that. feeling something I don't want to feel, I think it's a good clue that it's suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, because we don't that the human mind naturally wants to pull away from mm-hmm. suffering. And yeah, it's a big, big, big word. I mean, it's, it covers everything you mentioned: stress, anything you don't want to feel, basically. Um, minor stuff, big stuff. The goal of just being happy all the time. No, I mean, actually, it feels like it's trying to move towards. It's well, the the path of Buddhism is the path to the end of suffering. Not, I don't know about being happy all the time, but the ending of suffering. I haven't reached that place yet personally, <laughs> and I also don't know anyone who has. But I do believe that these practices help me suffer less. You know, um, they're the and compassion, too, is kind of an interesting feeling because there's a poignancy in it. Compassion is, the quivering of the heart is a kind of suffering. It's a pain. It's a pain for, but it's an open-heartedness as a response to suffering. And, it's, and it makes the suffering a little more bearable. Is that, does that help at all? Thank you. Clark? 
Um, it's like such a pleasant surprise. Um, I'm, I'm just teaching week seven of the, my first course teaching mindful self-compassion. Oh, really? And uh, yes, yeah, so it's, it's about like half people who are identified as LGBT, including a former student of mine who's uh, gender non-binary. So it's been really interesting, and um, I think two things that I might share in response to like what you were dialoguing with David about is that the suffering is a bad translation of uh, dukkha. So it, the suffering just means um, a constellation of things that's huge that are unwelcome, that we'd rather, and, and I think Philip Moff has this great discussion in one of his books about the different kinds of dukkha. And one of them is, uh, change is one of them. So even if something's pleasant, like I'm looking at that statue, and I really like that one, but somebody else said they didn't really like that one, they liked the old one. So change, so change is part of life. It doesn't have to be, I got cancer. So even when we have something that's beautiful, like yeah. I'm with this beautiful view, it can be a cause of suffering, because impermanence causes uh, dukkha. Yeah. One. So it's like it's a whole very mild, uh, from very mild to cancer, right? And then the other thing I think that's useful, especially for LGBT people and for minorities, is that uh, although I think Kristen's work at times is about, uh, sounds like the, the yin of self-compassion, like just let me be kind to myself and counsel myself in a kind voice. She also talks about the yang of self-compassion. Fierce compassion. Yeah. Um, not necessarily fierce. Like, so well, that's not the term she used in the workshop yeah. that I did. Yeah, yeah. So it includes, so yeah, like suffering, like dukkha. Like, like dukkha, something's got a variety. But one version would be, yes, fierce. So she has a son who's very severely autistic. And people sometimes criticize her on planes because why are you not controlling your son? And so sometimes she's very um, fierce, maybe, about explaining to them or telling them to stop that. Uh, but at other times, it's not necessarily fierce, aggressive, it's motivating. So her third question is, um, what do I need right now? And sometimes that's comfort, and sometimes it's something else. Like she'll, to give like an like, like example, probably a lot of people feel sleepy from meditations and stuff. So she would say, don't try to keep yourself away. But like maybe you ask yourself, what do I need? Oh, maybe I need a nap right now. So it's... Uh, and it's not, the goal isn't to, to be happy all the time. It's that they're not being, I think the suffering is the reactivity of the second arrow. So there'll still be unpleasantness, including unpleasant emotions. Like even the Buddha was unhappy when a relative died and said like all, said all the lights in the world went out. So it's not like the end of unpleasantness. It's just the end of this um, layer of grasping to keep it going on. But it's been, I, it's been the best thing that I've we the DPP together years and years yes, ago, I know. Which, I, I know. which I loved, but I, I really have loved mindful self-compassion. She's a great, yeah. she's a great teacher. Yeah, she's very much on to something. She's, she says, uh, I'm not a Dharma teacher, you know. Uh, and she said that she has a, uh, uh, an imposter syndrome even teaching, but there was just a sea of people there, and they were all, I mean, she was the guru for the day, for sure. But anyone else have that? Sir? I, I really appreciate your talk. And uh, thinking of uh, Ram Dass's term, loving awareness, I am loving awareness, and identifying with the the loving part, like you were talking about, and, and with the awareness itself, which 
which doesn't, it's not detached or just unfeeling at all. Right. Yeah. I like that. That would be a good phrase for men. You know, I'm going to practice loving awareness. And my, I think what I learned from, from Ram Das was that um, awareness is not unfeeling or dispassionate. It is inherently uh, warm toward whatever it, you know, it sees, loving it. Yeah. At least that's, I think that's my experience of it. Yeah. I had an incident about a month ago in which this really came up for me. Somebody stole something from me. And I had a lot of negative self-talk about why I didn't do what I could have done to prevent it from happening and going through that round and round. But I also felt that it was important for me to have compassion for the thief, too, because there's a life in which the only way somebody can manage to, whether it's feed his family or survive, is to steal from somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that it was also helpful to me to have some compassion go in that direction. Well, yeah, I mean, self-compassion is the, uh, a basis or a beginning, but um, the, the whole purpose of it, well, not the whole purpose, but one of the main purposes of it is, is to extend compassion outside of oneself. The reason I'm talking about self-compassion today is I think most of us are better at compassion for others than we are for compassion for ourselves. And the research that she did shows that if you can ex uh, increase your own self-compassion, compassion for others increases in the same way. Because compassion, you know, think about it, it has one taste. It's, it's, one, it's one kind of feeling. And you can talk about self and other compassion, or you can talk about inner compassion and outer compassion. But it's really all the same. You know, it's, the, it's a response to suffering. This, this is how she answers the, the, the criticisms of, well, you know, you're using the S word there, self-compassion. You know, that's almost as bad as the G word um, in some Buddhist circles, you know. Uh, but that, that was her, her response, was that there, there's inner directed compassion and outer directed compassion, and they're really the same kind of experience. Sure. So I have a question. Yeah. One. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I have a question. I have a question and a response. So my first, my question is in regards to you laid down the three. Was it three components, um, components yeah. that how she lays it out, and then you flipped it, or you yeah, I flipped it made around. a choice that, and you explained to us why that works for you. But I didn't quite get the explanation of how she explains her setup. Well, I wanted to talk to her. I was very. I wrote her an email, which she never answered, because it, it was curious to me. Why you start? Why did you start with mindfulness? She doesn't say anything about that in her book. No, she just lays it out, and that's. The, but but actually, I noticed when she teaches it, she'll off, she'll usually start with mindfulness. So I was curious about it. I'm sure she has a great explanation. She's very smart, and she knows her stuff. But uh, but anyway, so when I present it, I just start with, with the basis of it being mindfulness. Uh, yeah, so my response was, and I kind of had a reaction when you were talking, when you were sharing the um, the writing 
the meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, oh, this might be too gushy for some people. And I, as a gushy person, I just was like, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, what's the challenge in that for those people? And I just thought, sat here thinking like of Alan Watts, and he talks about those who are the prickly people and those who are the, the gooey people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think within Buddhism, I think it's an important thing. It's like, well, maybe for a prickly person, a gushy thing is going to feel uncomfortable. So how do you sit in that discomfort? And how is that an act of developing self-compassion, of having to be with what... To actually, I felt like what I also got from when you read it is that you quickly read it, you didn't give any of the words significance, and there's a lot of significance in what is written yeah, 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 in those yeah, words. Yeah. And to actually, as a performing artist, I hear it, how you said it, and I'm like, well, damn it. You know, can you actually give <laughs> some emphasis to it? So, I, I, as a prickly person, I feel guilty. <laughs> you know, so how, how to, I just acknowledge that as like, well, maybe that's a prickly person's place to have to sit with. Well, what comes up for them in that gushiness? Yeah, yeah, and, and by all, I've done that, that meditation, uh, and I've, I've liked it. Uh, it's not the way I do things, but uh, gooey people have the right to exist too. And, you know. <laughs> I mean, we should all be what we want. And yeah, that, that's a, that be, was a pejorative. That we should be, uh, you know, having that we should be able to offer that we should be able to help, right? A prickly person become a little bit more gooey, and a gooey person become a little bit more prickly, right? Like there should be, we are, well, we right? That should be. You know, I hope Buddhism is helping us to try to find the equanimity around, right? Yes. Well, the reason I do Buddhist practice is I'm in such need of it. So, yes, I hope so. <laughs> Thanks. Anyone else? So, I think the um, appreciated what you were saying about mindfulness versus. Heartfulness, or another way to describe it. Um, I think um, it's really about loving embodied awareness, and mm-hmm. one of the great tools to help with that, as I find, is the Enneagram, which identifies that we have these three centers of intelligence mm-hmm. the belly, the heart, and there's a mind. And so it's cultivating contact with that that really helps us become more present. And it also is. It describes why some of us feel more gooey than others because some people are more they leap with the heart. Yes. Others are um, when you talk about mindfulness, it's because we have a culture in which we're so heavy all the time, it, uh, it gets in the way of actually embodying and inhabiting ourselves. There's a great deal of wisdom that's happened that we experience through the body. Yeah, I agree. Um, and. The, the, the term for mind in the Pali language, it's closest to what the Buddha spoke, is sita, which, but it's all, that's also the word for heart. Heart and mind have the same word. They don't differentiate between the two, and thought was believed, as it is in other cultures, to happen here. And people experience their thinking here. We have a kind of a, Alan once talks about this, that we hallucinate that it's in here. It's as if, you know, we're, this is the central system here and this is where we are. We experience ourselves as kind of behind our ears, looking at, or behind our eyes, looking out. It's kind of interesting. That is really just a, that's not right. I mean, that's, that's just a, a, a convention or a cultural hallucination of ours. And also belly, heart, and mind, they're not really, I mean, we can, we can 
work with things that way, just like you can do the two wings of the bird. But but really, it's all one system, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. integration, but it's also helpful to it's helpful, sense yeah. the differences. Yes, that's <coughs> right. Um, in, I take two dogs in this, actually in this room, and we sometimes do exercise where we put our hand on our heart. And the goal is to bring our breath down to the belly. And according to that teacher, you know, that's where we get stuck in our emotions and our heart. So yeah, makes sense. Uh, it's very interesting how we talk about our, you know, our feelings too. I have a heavy heart. I have a, an open heart. All these are metaphors, but they're experience. They're not just metaphors. They're they're how we experience things. You know, it's very interesting that that, that is how we are. You know, I don't. There's no explanation for it as far as I know in science yet. Uh, but but that is it's real. Is that? A few more minutes. Um, you spoke about um, bringing the bringing our attention not so much on the suffering, but on the container, of the loving kindness mm -hmm. container around it. Yeah. So I guess the idea would be to, if there is no such container, to start out with, to kind of cultivate that yeah. container. That's the first step. And use that as sort of a meditative practice. Right, because if we're just with our suffering. That can just lead to despair. Just, just sit in your suffering and watch it. I mean, that's kind of, that's not enough, right? So if if we begin to cultivate a kindness uh, and a kindness in response to the little sufferings, the, you know, you know, I'm hungry or I'm in a bad mood today, or you know, little things, then it, then we can strengthen it. But yeah, I think I think. Um, I really think that that's what my, the, the mindfulness really needs to be about. What you said, loving awareness. Um, but that's the that's the point of it. I think that was the point of it for the early Buddhists. Um, the Buddha was also known as Sukhiya, the happy one. You know, the, the, what was supposed to distinguish all these these guys mostly uh, was that they were all happy. They were all cheerful all the time. It was kind of interesting. And nowadays, we forget that in some Buddhist play, you get a little dour, you know. It's kind of suspect if you're, if you're a little gushy. <laughs> so. I think that's another level of the operation of the inner critic, this notion of how, what we should have achieved spiritually. Mm -hmm. I'm not happy, there's something wrong with me, yeah. rather yeah. than just the nature of life. There's always going to be this up and down. You know? So it's a big piece of the internalizing a critic that causes us a lot of suffering. I grew up with that notion that, that if you know how to do life, you shouldn't suffer. I believe, so, and I didn't, not consciously, but that was, so there was always something wrong uh, with me if I was not happy all the time. And by, you know, you compare your insides to other people's outsides, it's very easy to think that other people are much happier, or at least they've got it all figured out when I'm going through all this stuff inside all the time. Um, so that was one of the ways, one of the things I got out of becoming a therapist. I thought, damn, everybody else is as big a mess as I am. <laughs> it was kind of a relief to discuss everything that I was going through, other people were, were saying it. And I, and I kept thinking, well, it was mine, you know.
we have to stop for a second. Yeah. Thank oh, you, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Um, <coughs> announcements. Is there, are there any announcements? Well, this isn't the new announcement, but I just want to mention that many of you have heard, some of you haven't, because of financial difficulties that the Sun is experiencing. We've asked that people consider the window of their generosity to be in the 10 to $20 range, less if circumstances so dictate, more if so circumstances so allow. And just to let you know, there is a noticeable difference. And I just want to say thank you on behalf of the Board of Directors. I just want to let people know that Hal Hershey has had a recurrence of uh, his leukemia, which he was taken off treatment recently because of his, his body couldn't take the treatment anymore. So he's looking at going into hospice and facing his own death. Mm -hmm. And today is his birthday. Today's his birthday. Mm -hmm. We have a host. I'm Don. Uh, there's hot water for tea. There's snacks uh, outside. You can put your dirty dishes in the sink of the dishwasher. I come around with the uh, Don baskets. Um, people meet uh, in the front door around 1230 to go to lunch and we're gathering. Um, we could use another host in our rotation. Um, a couple of people have uh, had a need to uh, withdraw from that kind of service. But it's an easy, I would say, way to uh, be of service to the Sangha. And um, so speak to me if you're uh, drawn to uh, helping out in that way. I'm begging. <laughs> um, before I tell you who the speaker is, any more, more announcements? Before I tell you who the speaker is next week, I want to thank you again for your talk today, Tom. And uh, it sort of speaks to, uh, I love the word kindfulness and self-kindness. What I keep forgetting to do since I've become a facilitator here on the first Sunday is to share an experience I had at an LGBTQ silent retreat at Spirit Rock one time where the two facilitators said, be kind to yourself and take care of yourself. Here at this space, we have blankets and cushions and pillows and things. If you're uncomfortable in any way, do what you need to do to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Kindfulness. I, I keep meaning to say that, but I'm too much in my head and not in my heart. <laughs> so thank you for making the whole topic about that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, next week, um, J.D. Doyle on August 11th. J.D. Doyle serves as a core teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center and a board member and co-founder of the LGBTQ Meditation Group. Uh, and there's a lot more here you can read or check it online. Um, should we gather in a circle for the meditation truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness in the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow in the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. 
and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.